Right, appreciate that, ladies. You would take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 1 this morning. Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading again the first four verses of Titus and chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The title of the message this morning is Chosen for the Lord's Purpose. Chosen for the Lord's Purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love and your mercies. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, as we rightly divide thy word of truth. I pray, Father, this morning as we look into thy word, that you'd help me as I preach, help me to preach with clarity and power, that the Spirit of God would work in hearts and open our understanding to receive thy truth, that we might be conformed to the image of your dear Son. And Lord, we do pray as in our midst this morning who have never repented of sin, and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. I pray that the Spirit of God work in their hearts today as well and bring about repentance and faith. We pray. Have your will and way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I fear that so, so often people who profess salvation have the attitude that, well, I'm saved and... That's all that matters, and I'm just here to live how I kind of please, and there's no real drive or concern. What, the, what does the Lord want with my life? What does the Lord want with my life? And there's not a serious concern about uh, the things of God and uh, how it applies to everyday life. But I believe this passage of Scripture teaches us and shows us that we do have a purpose and God has a plan and uh, something he desires for us. And that plan spans from the time we get saved throughout eternity. It's never ending. It has no end. It may have a beginning. Somebody said the difference between eternal life and everlasting life is God is eternal. He has no beginning or ending. We get saved at a certain point. So our life with God has a beginning, but it don't have any ending. That's everlasting. You know, I don't know if that's a true picture of things, but it sounds good, you know, so I give it to you. So that's free this morning. But, but anyway, but our life with God or for God does not have an end. It is eternal. And let me throw something else out here. Our service and worship of God is not going to have an end either. And so, you know, there's something I don't think we often think about. You know, we are chosen for the Lord's purpose. Now, I want to notice several things this morning. We're chosen according to our faith. In verses 1 and verse 4, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, 
and the acknowledging of the truth was after godliness. And then he says in verse 4, To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, the word elect means chosen or picked out. And it's used in other places in the Bible. And of course, you know, there, there are Calvinists that, that, that teach that, see, we're, we're chosen before the foundation. In fact, it says this uh, in verse 2, you know, about the promises of God before the world began. And, and some people believe that, you know, God chooses some to be saved and some God chooses some to be lost. It's not talking about choosing people to be saved or choosing people lost. It's talking about choosing people for acknowledging the truth which is after godliness. And, and that acknowledging of the truth is not talking about really salvation. It's talking about growth. Because acknowledging has the idea of it's knowledge that I'm getting that continues to grow. The knowledge of salvation is a one-time thing. But the knowledge of learning of God is a continual thing. And when you put the letters I-N-G under, on the word, it gives the idea of it's, it's something that continues. So, so we're chosen... To, to, uh, uh, to, to serve us, to learn of God and to serve God. And, and of course, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, in answer to those Calvinists, were chosen according, uh, were elect, verse 2 says, elect according to the full knowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So we're chosen According to the foreknowledge of God, God has foreknowledge. You and I don't have foreknowledge. You know, we might have some discernment and some ideas of what's going to happen if we do this or do that. You know, we might be able to have some insight into saying, well, this is likely to happen and, or this is likely to happen. But, but God has foreknowledge that he knows the end from the beginning. And so he chooses us according to his Foreknowledge. So, so when he says we're chosen before the foundation of the world, he but it's according to his foreknowledge. God knew or knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. Jesus chose Judas because he knew that Judas would betray him. He knew it. And he would fulfill the purpose that God had in betraying and fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. He did not make Judas betray him. Judas had all the same opportunities all the other disciples had, but he refused to repent. So, so that's what, what, what uh, chosen or elect, the word elect means. Uh, and it's used in Ephesians 1.4. Chosen us in him before the finest world that we should be holy and without blame. So we're chosen according to, to, the, to our faith. And he talks about several kinds of faith. First, he talks about common faith. In verse 4, he says, to Titus, my own son, after the common faith. And the word common means ordinary or belonging to generality. So it's a faith that belongs to everyone. So this is a faith of which all saved people have by receiving of the grace and mercy of God. When, when one repents of their sin and, put, and trusts in Christ as Lord and Savior, they have a common faith. They share a faith that all saved people share. It's, it's the same for everyone. There's not, oh, he has one kind of faith and he has another kind of faith, or he has one kind of salvation, he has another. No, it's all, it's all the same thing. It's all the same. Jude talks about the common 
the common faith as well. In Jude, in, in verse 3, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Is what he, how he calls it there. And it is common, you know, this, you know, salvation is common, that it's offered to all. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is common that it's the same for all, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, or whether you're a bond or free, you know, or rich or poor, or it doesn't matter. It's common to all. It is common that it gives eternal life to all who believe. We all have the same eternal life. Uh, and John 3.15 says that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it's, it's, it is common in that it is made known by the declaration of his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it is common that all who reject it, all who will not repent, will perish. Luke chapter 13 verse 3 says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So it is common. But I want to notice something else here about this faith. And I call this that we ought to be cons- have a concerned faith. Notice in verse 1 again, it says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. And to Titus, verse 4, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 1, when he says that phrase there, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. This word faith, or the faith he's talking about here with Titus, is defined as fidelity, or a faithfulness to observe, to, which is observance of promises and duties. So all of us who are saved have common faith, but not all are equal in faith or in faithfulness. Not all are equal. You know, we, we live in a world where things are not equal. By the way, that's never going to cease to be. Do you know in heaven things aren't equal? There's rank among the angels. You know, you have God, then you have, and you have angels, and you have uh, Michael the archangel, and then you have inferior angels. They're not all equal. You know, we have, this, we have this kind of fuzzy idea, I think, in Christendom or whatever, that when we get to heaven, all things are going to be equal. You know, that's not taught in the Bible. It's not. There's going to be reward and loss of rewards for God's people. That tells us that we're not going to be all equal or have the same responsibilities or same fellowship with God in heaven that some have. Now, we're all going to have access to him. But it's not going to be all equal. It's not that way now, even in heaven. And, and, and there are those who, who have or are saved, but are not the same, in the same uh, uh, place in faithfulness. Although it's God's purpose for all to have, to be concerned about their faith or their walk with the Lord. Have that same concern. You know, Luke 18 and verse 8. Luke 18 and verse 8. There's a, a, a verse there, a phrase there that I think about often as we think about the day in which we're living. Luke 18 8. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? 
Now, the prayer, the, this is predicated by a parable that men ought always to pray and not faint. And he gives you this illustration of a widow who was persistent in her petition and, and uh, to a, an unjust judge. And, and, of course, because of that, the unjust judge uh, granted her. And he says in verse 7, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? In other words, God is quick to avenge those who are faithful, those who are consistent, those who are persistent, those who are serious or devoted, we might say. And in this reference, one commentator said this, quote, the reference, Luke 18, 8, the reference is not, to personal faith, but to belief in the whole body of revealed truth, unquote. See, many are ignorant of what the Bible says about many issues of life. And the sad thing is, they're not all that concerned about it. They're just not all that concerned about it. They're just apathetic about it. But Colossians 1.18 tells us that in all things he might have preeminence. In other words, that's every issue in your life. He ought to have preeminence. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Joshua chapter 1. And as you look at Bible characters, you're going to find that there are those who were serious or devoted in their life, and there were those who were not as serious, or not as devoted. And this is what I'm referring to here. Joshua 1, 6 or 9 says, Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for inheritance the land which I swear unto the fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Thou mayest observe to do according to all, that is, all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Everywhere you go, and you're not to miss any aspect of the law. You're to keep all of it. Every detail. You know, a lot of people who confess, profess to be Christians aren't that concerned about the details that God gives in life. Do you know a priest died moving the ark because they didn't pay attention to details. They didn't pay attention to details. God gave details of how you move that ark and they didn't, uh, they didn't pay attention to details and a priest died because of it. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make the way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, what concern did Joshua have for life? Wouldn't you say that Joshua's faith was more than ordinary? More than ordinary. Or that of Moses or Paul? And Titus, it's more than just ordinary faith. In fact, here's what the Bible says about Joshua 
In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, The Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. See, Joshua's priority was his relationship with God and observing the commandments, the details of the law, of the word. His faith wasn't ordinary. He was concerned about it. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, Paul writes concerning the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, Paul did not say that about anyone else at Corinth. In fact, he did say other things about some at Corinth. He said about some of them, are you not carnal and walk as men? You know, their concern for the Lord's interest in the affairs of life was minimal. Or likened unto how natural men consider things. Whereas the house of Stephanus, they had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They addicted themselves. They devoted their, themselves to obeying God to ministering in the service of the Lord. You know, it was said of Paul, or said of himself in Acts chapters 26 and verse 19, as he's rehearsing his testimony uh, before either Felix or Agrippa or one of those um, uh, rulers, in Acts 26, verse 19 to 21, he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. So here again, Paul was... was uh, uh, strictly, uh, the strict observance of the promises and duties that God gave him to do. He said, he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And the heavenly vision was, you're going to prophesy before kings and princes, and you're going to suffer for my namesake. See, this kind of faith is a faith that knows no sacrifice too great for the Lord. No persecution or ridicule so unbearable it would cause you to quit or compromise. No price that is high enough to sell out to or compromise. No relationship superior to submit or surrender to. No doctrine too minor to obey. And will not neutralize the power of the gospel to convict of sin by omitting repentance from the gospel message to gain professions or favor with men, like many who threw out the gospel like its candy canes. You see, this is, this is a concerned faith. You know, are you concerned about your faith, about your walk, your relationship with the Lord, your obedience to Him? So today, I think there's, sad to say, but I think there's many people in our world today who, who claim the, or name the name of Christ who are not all that concerned. The second thing I see here is that we are commanded to continue in the truth. 
If you notice verse 1 again, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. The word, you know, there, of course, there must be, it's obvious, there must be some knowledge of God, of sin, of repentance and faith, for one to come to salvation. You know, we have to understand uh, those things to have a relationship with God. To be redeemed by Him, we must wait, that we must understand we must be made righteous or right in His sight. And so, Therefore, we must understand who, something about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and, and, and that we are sinners and we need to repent of our sin and we're willing to turn away from it and, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We ought to understand the person of redemption, that is Christ, that He's the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way that a person can be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we must understand the need to repent. That is, understand that sin is an offense against God. And repentance really is to have a godly sorrow or to be sorry that we've sinned against God. You know, Paul brings that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, and he talks about the sorrow of the world and also the sorrow of which leads to repentance. Second uh, Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10, he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Now, I'm not going to change my mind. You know, the word repent by itself simply means to change your mind. But he says that you sorrowed to repentance. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Though I, though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive the same epistle hath made you sorry, though what were but for a season... Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that in you might receive damage, uh, might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So godly sorrow worketh or brings about repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind. And godly sorrow is, we're sorry that we offended God. You see, the sorrow of the world is, I'm I'm sorry I got caught. You know, like a little child that disobeys their parents. And they're not sorry. They they may not even understand the the, the thing of offense yet until they get older. But but they're sorry they got caught because they're sorry they're going to hurt because they got caught. See, a lot of people in the world are just sorry they got caught. They're sorry they're in trouble. And they want to help out of their trouble. But they're not sorry they've sinned against God. And a good example of this is the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, he said, I, I'm, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like other men. In other words, he wasn't sorry he was a sinner or had sinned against God. He didn't even see himself as sinning against God. But the publican would not even look, lift up his eyes to heaven, uh, to, uh, but smote himself in the breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was sorry that he had sinned or offended God. That's what repentance really is. And so... You know, we, we have to understand that to come to salvation. 
But acknowledging the truth here is not about coming to salvation. It's about learning or growing in our faith, growing in our obedience. You know, 2 Peter 1.5 talks about adding to your faith. Uh, 2 Peter 2.2 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Again, that's adding to your faith. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when you add ing to a word as the word acknowledging here, you're, you're, it speaks of something that's in progress, it's ongoing, has been going on, and will be continue to go on. Will continue to go on. And this acknowledging of the truth, he says, is after godliness. It demonstrates a godliness or that one is devout or devoted to the divine will of God. So we could say, if you're not all that concerned about your walk with the Lord, you're not, you're not seeking after godliness. Somebody said godliness is really a godlikeness. It's, ha- it's having an awe or a great reverence or respect for God and the things of God. And diligent in, in your devotion to that. He says, it's, which is after godliness. In other words, it speaks of the goal to which anything tends. So this, this acknowledging of the truth is tending to godliness or godlikeness. It demonstrates a desire for godliness. Because truth leads to godliness. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul speaks a lot about this in his epistles. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he says, let's read verse 1 also, it's context. I exhort therefore the first of all supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7, also he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. In other words, godliness is not only going to affect your life right now, it's going to affect your life in eternity. Eternity. Chapter 6, verse 5. Perverse disputings of men and corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdrawal thyself. And then, of course, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he tells us the word to add to our faith, and so on and so forth. You know, and we see a picture in the scriptures of a man like this in Luke chapter 2, and verses 25 to 32. And, and this, the, the man, Simeon, and, you know, Simeon, uh, it says of him in verse 25 that he was devout. Luke 2.25 says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, 
Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So here was a devout man. Here's a man who continually was, was growing in his, his understanding of God and his relationship with the Lord and his fellowship with God. And God revealed to him things that he revealed to no one else. Do you want God, do you want to understand God? Do you want God to reveal himself to you? Do you want God, you want to have a relationship with God like Joshua or like Moses or like Paul? We say, well, I could never do that. Well, if that's your attitude, you probably never will. God's not respecter of persons. He shows himself strong on those on behalf of those who seek him. There has to be a seeking after him. There has to be an acknowledging, a continual learning of the truth of the word of God and a seeking uh, to understand the things of God. In Acts chapter 10, we have another example. There was a devout man here. This man is not saved yet, but he's devout. He's seeking God, sincerely seeking God. And, and he was a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to people and prayed to God always. This is, of course, speaking of Cornelius. And God revealed himself to him through Peter. God sent a man to take the gospel to him. In Acts 22, 12 and 13, Again, we have one Ananias, a devout man according to law, having a good report of all the Jews who dwelt there, came unto me. This is, of course, Paul is talking about this and how Ananias came to him. He said, He came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked upon him, up upon him. And so these were devout men. These were men that sought. They were continually acknowledging truth or learning. See, they were concerned about their life and their relationship and their fellowship with God and, and how, uh, and how the, God, uh, what, the, what pleased God in every issue of life, and therefore they were continually seeking His wisdom for everything. You know, this is the difference between David and Saul. It's the difference between the tribe of Levi and the other 11 tribes. In fact, look at Deuteronomy 33. I mentioned this the other night. Deuteronomy 33 and verses 8 through 10. Yeah, this is the difference between the tribe of Levi and the other tribes. <coughs> Why God chose Levi. And, and, you, and you say, well, this is discrimination. Hey, God's very discriminatory. God rewards us for our Devotion to him and our obedience to him. And there will be lack of reward for lack of obedience. Deuteronomy 33, verse 8 says, And of Levi he said, Let thy thummim and thy urim be with the Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massa, and with whom thou didst strive at the waters of Meribah, who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children, for they, for they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. Now, he's referenced here Meribah and Manasseh, Mass, uh, yeah, um, 
Massa, where the children of Israel strove against Moses, and the Lord and Moses said, "Who is on the Lord's side?" And the tribe of Levi joined him, and then he said, "Take ye every man his sword, and get in and out the tents, and slay every wicked among them." And what it's saying here is Levi didn't didn't consider whether it was a brother or a parent. No, they observed the law of God. They didn't spare judgment of God because of friend or foe. Who were they seeking? They were seeking to please the Lord. Their devotion was to God foremost. And so this is different between, between the tribe of Levi and the other 11 tribes. This is why they were chosen to serve in the temple. This is the difference between Caleb and his brethren. You know, five times it says of Caleb, he wholly followed the Lord his God. This is the difference between Titus and Demas. Paul left Titus in Crete for ministry, and he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. You see, when God looks for someone to serve him, he is discriminatory. I know the world hates this. At least they pretend they hate discrimination. But some of them that cry discrimination are the most discriminatory people on the face of the planet. But when God looks for someone to serve him, he will pass over those who are apathetic or indifferent to the whole counsel of God. He's looking for those that are devoted to him. Devoted to his commandments. He said this of Samuel, wherefore, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father shall walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. See, God is looking for those who are willing to allow the Lord to transform their lives. And, and by the way, this is God's desire for all who are saved. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, Ephesians 4 and verse 13, the Bible says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God under a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's God's desire that all come to the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or a mature child of God. You know, and we see Paul pens things like this in every epistle almost. And in Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11, it says, This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge. So, so again, acknowledging the idea of, of growing here. Abound more and more in knowledge and all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent. You may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. In Colossians 1.10, again, he says that you might work worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I could read many other verses, but we'll stop there for sake of time. 
you know, this is the this is the the the, the teaching of the Word of God that we continue to be growing in our understanding to continue in the truth. And then the third thing I see here is the certainty of the promise of life. Notice again verse 2 of Titus, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Somebody said eternal life is not just an intellectual moral code. By the way, if it was, we'd all be doomed to hell. No, it is the very life of God offered to anyone who will repent and turn to Him in faith. So eternal life is the very life of God. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ who is our life. Ephesians 4, 18 says, Having understanding darkened, being alienated, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, speaking of the world, because of the blindness of their heart. You see, you will miss eternal life because you are blinded by your own stubborn and prideful will against God and His command to repent. Salvation is not wishful thinking, as we often use the word hope. But it is an expectation, a joyful and confident expectation that gives us assurance through the promises of God. Promises of which there is historical record that clearly demonstrates that what God has promised, He does perform. God keeps His promises. And so we have this certainty of eternal life. This life of God, this eternal life is ongoing. It's continual life with God, chosen of God, in service of God for all eternity. Do you know we're going to worship and serve God in heaven in eternity? Again, a misconception many Christians have is no matter how we live here on earth, when we get to heaven, we're all going to be equal in our place of worship and service in the Lord in his kingdom. Well, it's just not true. In fact, you know, we will all be saved. But 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, yet some as by fire. Some will be saved without any reward. That's the idea there. There are going to be some that have received reward. There are going to be some that their rewards are going to go up in smoke. Because it's of no value to God. And God is going to judge us according to our works of what sort they are, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that. So there will be those who are rewarded much and those who will lose reward they could have had because they were not faithful to, to strictly observe the promises and keep the commands of God in His duties. In other words, they didn't deserve details. As I mentioned earlier, a priest died moving the ark because he ignored the details that God gave concerning instructions of moving that ark. You know, people die and go to hell because some do not observe the details of what the Bible teaches about salvation. And they end up believing a false gospel. So as we consider this life of God, which we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of which is the promises of God that cannot change because God cannot lie... He is without lie. That's really what this means here. He's truthful. His promises for future blessing and privilege to those who faithfully serve him. And so, 
you know, look at Matthew, for example, let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 and verses 14 through 29. And I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, but this is the, uh, this is the parable the Lord gave concerning the kingdom of heaven or well, the kingdom of God. He used those words interchangeably. And he, he chooses out servants, and unto one, verse 15 says, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. So it speaks about it like the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he gave responsibilities to his people, his disciples. We are his disciples. And according to our abilities, he gives us responsibilities. And, but you know, they don't all do the same. So, you know, and he's left. He's going back to heaven. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth him. So the Lord's coming back, and he's going to judge us for how we've served. And so, verse 20 says, he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I gained beside them five more talents. His Lord said unto him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter in, thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also received two talents, came and said, Lord, thou didst deliver unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he which had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. And lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather whether I strawed not strawed. Thou dost therefore to put my money to the exchangers. Then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him which hath ten talents. Oh, wait a minute. That's not fair. Do you know what the Lord calls this servant? Wicked and slothful. You know, we see this everywhere in the world. There are those who apply themselves and work, and there are those who do not. Those, there are those who are concerned about being profitable to the world and for their own good, and there are those who are not. It's like that in the kingdom of God also. There are some who name the name of Christ that are concerned and they are diligent and they are devout, seeking the things that be of God and living to please Him and honoring Him with life, continually growing in their understanding of Him that they might be better servants of Him. And then there are others who are like, oh, well, you know, it's not so important. You know, we're going to be rewarded or not rewarded based on our service. And we're not going to be rewarded all the same. So, and, and we, of course, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 also. In verse 17 of that passage, he said he's going to destroy... Those that defile the temple of God. And I believe the temple there refers to the church. Those who bring, are, are a corruptive influence in the church is going to be destroyed. And that, that, that 
the word destroy there is not to uh, uh, damn in hell, but it has the idea of corruption, meaning ruin. You know, if we defile the church by not observing the commands and the instruction God has given us as one of the Lord's churches, we're going to corrupt. And he's going to destroy us. And we will lose our reward. And so, there is a certainty. I promise, this is ongoing. You know, you know, God has chosen us to be acknowledging of the truth, to be continually growing in the truth, to growing in understanding and observance of, the, his, of his word. This requires diligence. It requires devotion. It requires effort. It requires a willingness to obey what we learn. And the Lord reward us for our devotion both now and in eternity. You know, when we leave this world, we're not done serving the Lord. We're not done worshiping the Lord. Read the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5. There's a lot of worship going on in heaven. The Bible tells us in other places that we will rule and reign with Him. That's going to be part of the reward. There will be some that rule and some that won't. So are you interest, Are you serious or, uh, well, not so? We're all going to face the judgment. Of course, first we must have knowledge and assurance of salvation through Christ. Have you been born again? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? But Christian, are you continuing in learning of the Lord and growing in observance of His command and duties? Are you concerned with your walk and service of the Lord? You ought to be because it will affect your eternity. In reward or loss thereof. So how is it with you? You know, we've been chosen for the Lord's purpose to worship and serve Him now and for all eternity. It's not just in this life. Oh, it's going to be different in the next life. It'll be a different kind of service and it'll be you know, rejoicing and, and blessing and, 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 and none of the hardships that we know in this life, but it's still going to be, we're going to be serving the Lord. We'll be ruling and reigning with Him if we have faithfully served Him. But we're not going to all be equal. Our reward, again, is based upon our works of what sort they are. So how is? How is? Are you concerned about your faith, about your walk with the Lord? Are you concerned about the details or just the generalities.